you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. As we continue our exposition of this tremendous epistle of Paul, we'll be doing it for, this is I think the 22nd or 23rd message on this particular book. And we're up to chapter 9. And as you know, when we started to deal with the matter of um, the eating of meats that were offered to idols, we started to give you some information concerning halal in United Kingdom. We gave you some information concerning the fact that in many places uh, this meat is being offered and no one knows about it, uh, in restaurants and sports stadiums and so on. And then last time we showed you a video uh, where Prince Charles also got involved because he has a chain and um, they were serving meat that he did not know was uh, particularly prepared for halal as well. Well, we thought we'd keep you current on what's going on. And I want to show you just a small clip again of something that's happening now with food stores that are carrying it in England and uh, what happens when uh, individuals protest not knowing what meat is being sold. So just take a look at this clip. A Tesco store in Northern Ireland was reluctant to refund a Christian woman who unknowingly bought a joint of halal lamb. The duty manager at the store only gave in when she argued that Tesco wouldn't treat a Muslim this way. Mrs. Andrina Robinson had read in the press that all of Tesco's New Zealand lamb was slaughtered according to Islamic ritual. She took the meat back to her local store in Newton Abbey near Belfast, seeking a refund. I was disappointed with Tesco that they had not labelled the meat clearly because if I had known it was halal meat, I would not have bought it. And I just feel very strongly about that. Um, I was dismayed that Tesco and other supermarkets do not label their meat. The manager said unless there is a problem with the quality of meat, he would not be able to refund her. I did finally say I felt that if I had been a Muslim who had been misled into buying non-halal meat and then discovered that it was non-halal, that uh, if I came back with it and demanded a refund that um, I would be given it. And I felt that as a Christian I had as much right um, to come back and ask for a refund. At that point he relented and reluctantly took the meat back. The Christian Institute's Mike Judge says Mrs Robinson should have been given an immediate refund. Well, it's disappointing that Mrs Robinson had to argue with Tesco's before getting her refund. I think Christians will have different opinions about whether they personally would eat halal meat or not, but people should be given freedom of choice. Mrs Robinson chose to return the meat to Tesco, and I think they should have been quicker to respect her views. I think Christianity is being more and more marginalised. I also see it as a, a growing uh, oversensitivity to Islam in the nation. And I feel issues like this have to be highlighted. I did that and will continue to keep you updated on this information because I believe that what's happening in the UK now will soon be happening here as well. Um, that chain of food stores there carrying the meat and does not in any way advertise 
where it comes from or what is done. It's being done here too. In fact, I went to one of the food stores the other day that I knew that some of this meat was going to, and I talked with the butcher. And I said, halal. He said, what? He <laughs> said, what is that? He hadn't even heard of it. But they have it there. Isn't that amazing? Uh, so the point of this illustration is this. <clears throat> you will shortly have to demonstrate your convictions concerning the Word of God, even in things like eating a meat. You think that's outdated. It isn't. She used the phrase there, that Christianity is being marginalized. And that is true. That is happening all over the world. Europe, United States especially, UK of course. It's going to happen here. But you should be alert. And that's what we're going to be trying to do. To give you information that will cause you to be alert, to be aware of what's going on around you, to read the signs of the times. Amen? Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. <clears throat> your word is profitable. All of your word is profitable for your people, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We thank you for the truth that man shall not live by bread, physical bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We thank you for the fact that we have this word available to us. May we then be responsive to that word and realize that all of the word is, is appropriate and applicable to everyone, to children, to young people, to older folk, to men, to women, to those who are married, to those who are not, the word of God in its entirety is applicable to all of us. Help us, we pray, to receive it as such. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Paul is still continuing to focus on the truth he started in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. That has to do with the rights of a Christian. And he is demonstrating the point that the greatest right we have is not to use the rights that we have if it's going to negatively impact a child of God. He continues that truth in chapter 9. In fact, it's an amazing thing to see that he goes on to chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13, focusing on the same thing. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13 will be the climax of this truth that he is teaching here. And so we have to ask ourselves, why is so much of the Word of God focused on teaching us how we are to utilize the freedoms we have in Jesus Christ? The Holy Spirit must have thought it was important to emphasize it in all of these chapters. And so we have to be sure that we're listening to the voice of the Spirit. And so I call this particular chapter the greatest right of all, part three, Paul's personal example. Because what he is going to do is give 
the Corinthians a personal example of how he applies his principles concerning the rights of a Christian and when they should be when they should be used and when they should not be used. Notice how he begins. Please follow in your Bibles. We won't have all of the text on the screen today. Look at your Bibles. Paul says, Am I not as free as anyone else? In other words, he's saying, Don't I have the same rights as you? That's what he's saying. You as a Christian, you have rights. I want you to know that I have rights too. In fact, he goes on, he says, am I not an apostle? In fact, he's saying, perhaps I might even have greater rights than you because of my status. And I believe he's saying this sarcastically, if you will, as a way of emphasizing and arguing his point to get it across in a way they can understand it, to get an attention. He's saying, listen, I have rights just like you have. And in fact, because I'm an apostle, apostle, I might even have some greater rights than you have. Now, the word apostle here is important. The bottom line meaning for this word is one sent under commission. Really, it means one sent under commission with the authority of the one who commissions him, who sends him. Now, in scripture, it refers primarily to the 12 apostles, including the Apostle Paul. I should say the 12 apostles and Paul. These men had a special commission. And along with the New Testament prophets, the Spirit of God tells us in Ephesians 2.20 that they were responsible for laying the foundation of the church. The church is built upon the foundations of whom? The apostles and the prophets. They had that particular commission from Jesus Christ to lay the foundation of the church. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. But the preaching and the teaching of the apostles and prophets, the foundation of the church. So Paul is saying, listen, I have apostolic rights. I have apostolic rights. And I'm going to give you, give you now proof of my apostolic authority. Now I would dare to say that many people today who call themselves apostles would not be able to interpret this passage and obey it because it's so contrary to what they're doing. All right? Because Paul talks about the biblical qualifications of an apostle. And I would dare to say no one today could meet those qualifications as given here. Let's take a look at it. The first one he says, I have seen the resurrected Christ. Look at your text. Haven't I seen our Lord with my own eyes? You see, seeing the resurrected Christ was a requirement for being an apostle of Jesus Christ. And Paul had seen him many times. Not only on the road to Damascus. But many times you read the scriptures, you'll see where Paul says that Jesus appeared to him in a vision. Jesus told him, told him, and so on, and again and again. This is what it says in Acts, for instance, chapter 1. When they were about to choose someone to replace Judas, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and among us, had to have that acquaintance, 
beginning with the baptism of John. In other words, beginning at the ministry, at the time Jesus began his ministry, to the time he was raised again, and they saw him. That was a qualification to be an apostle. Beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Meaning that they saw the resurrected Christ. Paul saw and met the resurrected Christ on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians according to Acts chapter 9. All the apostles were to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. The scriptures are clear in this. In addition... The writer to the book of the Hebrews explicitly tells us that the apostles were given ability to perform special signs and wonders to attest the message that they preached. Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 2. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, it's even called the signs of an apostle. The one who commissioned them to go with the message also endued them with power to manifest miraculous events to confirm the fact that they were sent by Jesus Christ. Paul says in this passage that he himself, in this epistle, that he himself had performed such miracles at Corinth. Second Corinthians chapter 2 verse 12. So this was another sign of an apostle, the ability to perform miracles that no one else could do. There is a tremendous error being taught in the church today that every believer is able to perform signs and wonders. The Bible does not teach that. Read it, study it carefully. You'll see that it was done by the apostles. Read chapter 2 of Acts You'll find out it says, many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. See it again and again. But then he gives another proof of his apostleship. He said, isn't it because of my work that you belong to the Lord? So he's saying, you yourselves, you are proof to the fact that I am an apostle. Even if others think I am not an apostle, I certainly am to you. You yourselves are proof that I am the Lord's apostle. He said, the fact that you are a part of the church of Jesus Christ is proof that I am an apostle. You see, Paul considered the Corinthian church a very special seal of his ministry as an apostle. Corinth was a difficult city in which to minister. And yet Paul had accomplished a great work there because of the Lord's enablement. Acts chapter 18 describes this in detail. The very fact that these people were a part of the church is a validation of the authenticity of the apostleship of the Paul. He says, you are proof that I'm an apostle. He then goes on to argue the rights that come with his apostleship. And this is a point now, he's still dealing with rights. No, forget that. And this is one of the problems with the, with the way we study scripture. We take things out of context. He is arguing his rights as an apostle in order to apply it to all Christians in principle. This is what he says. This is my answer to those who question my authority. That's verse 3. Verse 4. Don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? Notice now, don't we have the right to be entertained by you, to care, to care for by you? Don't we have the right 
to bring a Christian wife with us as the other apostles and the Lord's brothers do, even as the first Pope did. I'm sorry, as Peter did. <laughs> or is it only Barnabas and I who have to work to support ourselves? Paul is being very strategic here. He's being very specific. He's speaking directly to the situation in which he found himself at Corinth, where some were questioning the validity of his apostleship. And so he homes in on his right to receive support from the church as an evidence of the validity, the authenticity of his apostleship. Notice what he says. In fact, let me summarize because it takes a little time to go through detail here. What he's going to be saying here is the laborer is worthy of his hire. That's the bottom line. Meaning that a person is entitled to benefit personally from the work he does. That's the bottom line. And Paul gives five arguments here to support his thesis. He begins with the natural or the temporal, the everyday affairs of life. What is, this is what he says in verse 7 for number 1. What soldier has to pay his own expenses? He's saying that when a person joins the army, he doesn't have to pay for his own upkeep. The government does that. Why? Because they are responsible for keeping him while the soldier does the work to protect the country. That's just natural. That's just normal. What farmer plan, plants a vineyard and doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? If you're a farmer and you plant your produce, it's natural for you to benefit, to eat some of that stuff. You're not just doing it for other people, you're doing it for yourself. It's just a natural thing to expect. Then he gives a third example. What shepherd cares for a flock of sheep? and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk. A shepherd is entitled to sharing from the benefits of the sheep that he's taken care of. He then moves to the biblical aspect, the Old Testament, to give another illustration. This is number four on his list of illustrations of his point. He says, am I expressing merely a human opinion? Or does the law the law here is the word Torah. It doesn't mean the Ten Commandments. It means the five books of Moses. Am I expressing merely a human opinion or does the law say the same thing? Then he goes on to the law of Moses contained in the Torah. The law of Moses says, you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. Now notice this question. Was God thinking only about oxen when he said this? Wasn't he actually speaking to us? I want you to see the implications now of divine inspiration. This is what the Holy Spirit intended. Moses didn't intend it, but the Holy Spirit intended it for us today. Was God thinking only about oxen when he said this? Wasn't he actually speaking to us? Yes, it was written for us. So that the one who plows and the one who threshes the grain might both expect a share in the harvest. This is a tremendous passage here. Paul is quoting from this passage in 
Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, to prove his point. Now, he quoted the same passage when he was talking about Timothy. And he encourages Timothy to teach the people at Ephesus that they were supposed to take care of the preachers. It's the same thing he's doing here. So Paul is saying, listen, oxen cannot read. That's what he says. It wasn't written for them. Oxen cannot read. The verse wasn't written for them. It was written for us of the day. It wasn't even written only for the farmer who was using the ox to plow. It was written for us today. Paul sees, therefore, a universal spiritual principle in this commandment that applicable to us today. The laborer has the right to share in the results of his labor. The ox had plowed the soil in preparation for sowing, and now he was threading out the grain that had been harvested. He should partake of it. He should be able to eat some of it. And Paul is making the point. It's written for us today. Paul then makes a clear application to himself. Look at verse 11. Since we have planted spiritual seed among you, aren't we entitled to harvest of physical food and drink? You see how he's applying the truth now? First, he looks at life in general. Then he goes to the Old Testament. He takes the same principle. Now he applies it. He says, hey, the same thing is true today. Verse 12, if you support others who preach to you, shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? Why? Because I am an apostle. He has a greater right. Notice he's stressing the greater right because he's going to give an illustration of how you're supposed to use your rights in order to honor God and to show your love for fellow believers. Paul had tilled the ground and planted the seed in Corinth. He had seen a harvest from the seeds he had planted. It was only right and natural, therefore, that he enjoyed the fruits of the harvest. The lesson was clear. The Christian work, the Christian worker has the right to expect benefits from his labors and from those with whom he labors amongst. If this is true in the secular realm, Paul is saying, it is certainly true in the spiritual realm. Paul is really, really using these illustrations to strongly validate his point. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 11 states a basic principles of the Christian life and in the Christian church. If we receive spiritual blessings, we should in turn show material blessings to the one or ones from whom we receive the spiritual blessings. Paul applies this principle to Jews who gave the spiritual blessing to the Gentiles by giving them the word and so on. And so he says in Romans chapter 15 that the Gentiles have an obligation to share material things to the Jews because they shared spiritual things in the word of God. And after all, through the Jews came the Savior. And in Galatians chapter 6, he teaches the same thing. Look at what he says. Those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. Now, I didn't put that in there. All right? That's the principle that was taught in the Old Testament. That's the principle that is taught in everyday life. Paul says we have to apply it here. Paul then introduces the major 
theme of his discourse, which he is going to elaborate upon in this chapter and the main thing, the main point. This is what he says. But we have never used this right. Did you see that? He's gone to all this work to prove that he has the right. Now he says, we've never used it. We've never used it. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Jesus Christ. And that's the core of his teaching in this, this chapter. But he just introduces it here. He's going to bring it up later on. Paul did, in fact, accept financial support from other churches while he was ministering at Corinth, but he didn't receive anything from Corinth. He wouldn't. He deliberately refused to accept any support from Corinth. Why? Because there were some there who were doubting his apostleship. There were some there who were saying that he was only in the ministry for the money. Sounds familiar? You see, now, other ministers had accepted support. You'll see that in, as we go along in this, in this chapter. But Paul preferred to remain apart from that. Why? Lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. He wanted to be the best example possible to other believers. So when they said, here's something for you, Paul, Paul said, keep it. He gives one more Old Testament example. Verse 13. Don't you realize, this is another, this is the fifth example now. Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple? This is what the tithes were used for. And he's a part of it. To support the priests and the Levites in caring for the temple. And those who serve at the altar, they get a share of the sacrificial offerings. You see, it isn't only the pagans who used to eat the meat that was offered to their idols. The priests and the Levites ate some of the meat that was offered to God as a sacrifice as well. And it was clearly spelled out in the Old Testament that, hey, you've got to take care of them. And they had some of the best part of the meat as well. The priests and Levites lived off the sacrifices and offerings that were brought to the temple. The regulations governing their part of their offerings and the special tithes they received, all of this is taught in the book of Numbers, in the book of Leviticus, and so on. The people who are in the temple were cared for by the people. The application is clear. If the Old Testament ministers under the law were supported by the people to whom they ministered, should not God's servants who minister under grace also be cared for by the people? That's Paul's argument. Paul now seals his argument with the teaching of Jesus Christ himself. This is what he says. In the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the gospel, the good news, should be supported by those who benefit from it. Paul, I believe, is referring to Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 10 when he sent the seventy out. And this is what he says. Stay in the house, eating and drinking what they give you. For the laborer, this is Jesus now, is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Now that's a big problem. Matthew 10, he repeats it. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a star for the worker. 
is worthy of his support. In other words, you should expect the people to whom you minister to care for you. That's a basic principle. And Paul is saying the church cannot forget that. Paulie, Paul clearly proved his point then. His detailed argument proved conclusively that he had the right to expect the Corinthian believers to support him in the ministry when he was with them. He establishes that without doubt. If he was in a court of law, the case was won. But now, having established that fact, as we would say, winning his case, and he did so without a shadow of a doubt, he now turns just as forcibly to defending his right not to use that right. This is what he does in the rest of the chapter, verses 15 to 27. He had his case won. Now he turns on himself to lose it. I don't know if that'll be a good lawyer, but this is what he does. But he's doing it for a purpose, to teach us a lesson as believers in Christ. So I hope we don't miss it because the Spirit of God brings his truth home again and again and again. Notice what he says, verse 15, yet I have never used any of these rights. And I am not writing this to suggest that I want to start now. In fact, I would rather die than lose my right to boast about preaching without charge. Man, I wish all the preachers would read this. The so-called health and wealth preachers, don't, they don't go to this passage. You can't. I would rather die than lose my right to boast about preaching without charge. Yet preaching the good news is not something I could boast about. Now you've got to follow Paul here. Because he seems to be talking both sides of his mouth. Saying one thing and taking it back. But he isn't. I am compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me. If I didn't preach the gospel. How terrible. Let's look at this passage carefully. Powerful truth here. First Paul repeats his position. He says, yet I have never used any of these rights. And I am not writing this to suggest that I want to start now. In other words, he didn't do it in the past and he wasn't starting to do it now. He was saying, don't misread my present intentions, what I'm doing. Because you might think I'm only doing this so you could give me money. Uh-uh. Say, no, no, no. I'm not doing that for the reason. I want you to understand here now. This is the Apostle Paul talking to Christians that he worked for years. And he knew their hearts. They were still acting like carnal. They shouldn't be thinking like this about preachers. But they were. And he gives the bottom line for his position, why he did not receive money from them. And he's only talking about receiving from them because he received money from others. In fact, I would rather die than lose my right to boast about preaching without charge. Now we can understand 
why he wrote what he did. He gave the Corinthian believers a living example of the very principles he was writing about. He was forcefully bringing home a principle taught from everyday life, taught in the Old Testament, taught in the New Testament by Jesus Christ. And he says, now listen, I am a living example of that practice, of that principle being put into practice. Isn't that great to be able to say that? Here's what I believe about the word of God. And here's how I demonstrate that in my life. Can you do that? Can I do that? He says that the core purpose for living, his core reason for being in the ministry was preaching the gospel without charge. That's the reason for his being in the ministry. That's the reason for his living. To preach the gospel without charge. To give it the same way he got it. The gospel is a gospel of grace. It doesn't cost anything to receive it. Therefore, Paul says, it shouldn't cost anything for those who receive it to give it. He says he would rather die than to give up this right to do that. And even when he does preach the gospel in that way, he says he still cannot take credit for doing it. Why? Because he has been given a divine compulsion to do it. That's why he was saved. That's why Jesus appeared to him. That's what Jesus commissioned him to do. Now he's saying that Jesus actually compels him from within to do what he called him to do from without. He can't stop even if he wanted to do it. He's saying this divine call that knocked him off his horse at the feet of Jesus Christ. Who art thou, Lord? I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. He says, go to the Gentiles, preach the gospel. He says that outward commission is now being executed by an inward compulsion. Paul's entire life was given over to preaching the gospel without charge. Now he doesn't say that means that I do not deserve to be taken care of. He has just established the fact that yes, I deserve to be taken care of as preaching the gospel. And the church is supposed to take care of me. I always like to say, if you don't take care of me, God can take care of you. <laughs> That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, listen, but I don't do it for that. I don't do it for security. I don't do it in order to get money from the gospel that I preach. Boy, listen, if we could only get that truth today, most of the whole economic structure of many of the ministries would fall to the ground. 
Because the church has been turned into one big business. And all the preachers and managers are just trying to get as much money as they possibly can through what God has given them. And I'll forget, I used this illustration before. We had a young man, and was first saved out here. One of our, one of our speakers brought him out here. And he really had his beginning in the Bahamas. Preach well, powerful. He went back to the States and became popular. Very popular. We invited him back. Well, we had invited him back a couple of times before that, but then we invited him back several years later to come again. You know what he said? I cannot come unless I have a guarantee of $10,000. Not only that, I have to bring five people with my entourage, my secretary, and you have to put them up. And not only that, you have to guarantee me that you're going to sell my books. And this is a young man that when he came, nobody knew him, nothing. We gave him all the exposure, we gave him all the opportunity. Now, because he's famous, he has to travel with a guarantee of $5,000. What was it, 10? 10, $10,000. And five people is his entourage, his secretary, his PR, and so on. This is what Paul is preaching against. Oh, of course, I said to this guy, thank you. That's it. We never want to see him again. <laughs> Paul is saying that he had this compulsion because God had laid a hold of him and given him a task and energized him. He said that's all he's living for. He said the same thing in Colossians chapter 1. Listen to these powerful words. We proclaim him. Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. So that we may present every man complete in Christ. Notice this now. For this purpose also I labor. Striving according to his power which mightily works within me. You see that? Paul says his entire life is consumed with this inner passion to proclaim the gospel. To make people perfect before God. And he said, woe is me if I don't do it. Payment or no payment. Paul says, I'm a living example of this. This is what I call Paul's theological or doctrinal conviction for doing what he did. In other words, he believed the truth and he lived it. This is the inner, motion, inner motivation for his outward action. This is why he did what he did in the way he did it. This is why he explains so carefully here these principles. Can you live like that? Or do you live? Are you living like that? Well, you could say that your belief, your conviction concerning the word of God is evidenced by the way you live. Now, of course, when we preach a message like that, we always challenge with what? Well, you preaching it, what about you? And me and money in the ministry, we got problems. People will tell you who work with me, I don't like the fool with money. Because I know it's corrupting. I know the way it can influence preachers. So I have to give at least one example, not because it's me, but because I got to do what Paul does here. Give an example from himself. 
But I was encouraged to come here to preach the gospel, to, to, to be a pastor here at Calvary Bible Church. One of the conditions that I laid down was this, that I would not be told what the salary was. I didn't want to talk about money until after I was sure God wanted me here. I believe all of the pastors who were here then would validate that fact. The same position was drove me. I wanted to be sure that I was in God's place where he wanted me. And I didn't want money to be a factor in deciding that. You understand? That's what Paul is talking about here. That's why he now explains by giving three reasons for his refusal to accept material support from the Corinthian church. Because you see, sometimes people use that against the preacher. You better preach that way. Don't preach about that. Or I can support you. I can do this. I can do that. But Paul says, I don't care what you do. I'm going to preach the gospel whether you support me or not. Because God is my paymaster. He's going to say that. Now in that day, and even as it is in our day, we had itinerant preachers and teachers. They were going all over the place, traveling throughout the land, going from church to church. When you read the epistles, you will have Paul talking about it, Peter talking about it, James talking about it, John, all of them talking about it. Many, like the day, were doing it only for the money. That's all they're doing it for, just for the money. Now Paul says, I don't want to be classified as one who is called a huckster of the gospel. That's the word he used. That's why, remember in chapter 2, he says, I don't use fancy words and oratory just to please you all there who are looking for intellectualism, who are looking for wisdom and looking for great philosopher. I don't do that. All I want to know amongst you is Christ crucified. You might not like the message. You might not like the emphasis on blood. You might not like the emphasis on the fact that you can't do nothing to earn your salvation. But that's what God called me to do. And that's what he's compelling me to do. And I don't care if you like it or not. I'm going to preach it. He says, I only have one person to answer when it comes to the gospel. And that's God himself. That's what he's saying. He wanted the message of the gospel to be free from any obstacle or hindrances in the minds of those to whom he ministered. And Paul makes the amazing claim that his wages or his reward was to be able to preach and teach the gospel without charge. Now, you have to, this is an amazing statement that we miss. Paul is saying that his payment for doing what he was doing to have the joy of no, he wasn't doing it for money. Isn't that amazing? He said, my joy in ministering to people like you Koreans who give me so much trouble. You aren't giving me no joy. Where am I getting my joy from? I'm getting my joy from knowing that I am preaching the gospel to you and I ain't charging you one thing for it. That's my joy. That's my reward. 
This meant that no one could accuse him for being in the ministry for money. And you'd be surprised to know how this kind of thinking prevents me from doing a lot of things with people in the church or not in the church. Of who I spend time with and who I don't spend time with. Because of this principle. If some people could accuse, especially the preacher, of sucking up. You know that word, eh? <laughs> to certain people who could benefit them. And so they suck up to them. They compromise. They say one thing here, but they do something thing there. That's sucking up. Paul said, not him. And I want to say, not me. Now sometimes that's not taken too kindly by people, you know. You think you brush them off, high-handed or whatever it is, highbrow, whatever you want to call it. He's saying that his right to receive support from the churches to whom he ministers is outweighed by his right not to do so in order to prevent it from becoming a stumbling block to his preaching the gospel. That's what he's saying. My friends, listen. And I was trying to figure out, you know, this passage for us today. And it, it seems like it was designed for us today. Because the wrong attitude toward money has hindered the gospel from the earliest days of the church until now. That's one of the biggest problems in the church today. Attitude of preachers toward money. Ananias and Sapphira love money more than they love the truth. And God killed them for that. Acts chapter 5. Simon the magician thought he could buy the gift of the Spirit. Do you remember that? For money in Acts chapter 8. Do you, know, do you know now that you could find his name in the dictionary? Under simony? And you know what simony is? It's the practice of buying and selling religious offices and privileges. The buying and selling. Some time ago, I got a call from a religious organization, so they wanted to give me a doctoral degree. Now, I never liked these kind of degrees. I believe you get a doctorate, you learn it. All right? These honor degrees, there's no earning in that at all. So, so well, let me 